Evening, everybody. Surely most everybody in here, I'm guessing, has probably seen the movie The Green Mile. And if you have, then you will certainly remember one of the central characters in that movie. That is the, the big gentleman, John Coffey. And this was a character played by Michael Clark Duncan who passed away in 2012. But if you remember that movie, there were several, I can say this, there were several similarities, if you will, between the character that was known as John Coffey and some of the things that we see in our Bibles about Jesus. For one, the initials, John Coffey, Jesus Christ. The initials were the same. I don't know if that was on purpose or by accident. But you'll recall in the movie that John Coffey was a death row inmate. He was wrongly sentenced to die for a crime he did not commit. And so as we stop and think about that, obviously we know that Jesus died for sins that he did not commit. One website reference that I went to about the movie The Green Mile, and particularly about John Coffey in preparation for this sermon, described the character John Coffey as follows. Said he was a loner in a brutal and cruel world. A gentle giant who felt like a misfit in the world. And I thought that's a pretty apt description of, of that particular character. And it went on to say, Coffee, in the movie, had supernatural powers. He could heal people of their ailments as he did for Paul Edgecombe's or Tom Hanks' bladder ailment, and later for removing the brain tumor of the prison warden, James, James Cromwell's wife. But his powers went beyond removing illness. He also removed evil spirits. John Coffey had the ability to heal and to see the truth in a person just by touching them. Remember in the movie, the, the, the prison, the, the bad, I forget his name, but the, the, the bad prison uh, guard there. And he knew, he could, he could feel this character as it was portrayed. And of course, that was all Hollywood, and so it wasn't real. We understand that. But when you stop and think about some of those things that were pictured in that movie... I want you to consider this. A reported dialogue quoted on that same website from John Coffey might give us a lot of insight into the pain that such an incredible gift as he was portrayed as having might bring with it. Picture him saying this. I'm tired, boss. Remember that? His heart was broken. He said, I'm tired, boss. I'm tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. Mostly, I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel and hear in the world every day. There's too much of it. It's like pieces of glass in my head all the time. Can you understand? That was a dialogue from the movie. And no, surely we cannot understand what it would be like to have all, be able to feel all that pain and ugliness on a tangible level, like pieces of glass in our head. We have trouble enough 
dealing with the problems that we see around us every day without feeling it on a tangible level. We have problems enough dealing with the everyday pain and evil that we can see on the evening news or maybe in our neighborhoods or newspapers. We have trouble enough dealing with the pain and the plots and the schemes that we even suspect that some people in their ignorant human weaknesses might be seeking to carry out on somebody else. When we suspect somebody of having ulterior evil motives, sometimes we just can't deal with, why would somebody even do that? Why would they say that? Why would they think that we have trouble enough dealing with that? And we certainly have trouble dealing with our own sins and shortcomings on a daily basis. If you're like me, sometimes you say, why did I just do that? Why did I, I know better than that, you know? So surely we cannot begin to imagine what it must be like, or what it would even be like, to walk into a room. Now think about this. This is kind of the centerpiece of tonight's lesson. We can't imagine what it would be like to walk into a room and to feel, to know and feel all of the ugliness and ungodliness in everybody's heart in a room. Can you imagine how overwhelming that could be? To know the ugliness that's in people's hearts and minds in a room all around you when you walk into a room. How overwhelming would that be? We think we have struggles sometimes with things we can see. What if we could really do that? Now imagine this. How much more infinitely painful and devastating it must have been for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was absolute purity, was he not? Yes, he was. He was absolute holiness, was he not? Yes, he was. He was absolute sinlessness. Can you imagine one who was absolutely pure and holy in the flesh to begin with, walking into a room and knowing what was in people's hearts and all the ugliness and the abhorrent ungodliness that was in people's hearts? How our Lord and Savior must have suffered in some of those circumstances. We don't often think about his, we sing a song about his big heart being broken. And we often talk about his suffering on the cross. And we know, we, we know that he suffered on the cross. But I want to suggest to you tonight that we stop and take a look at Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. With that ability to read people's thoughts and hearts, to feel on a personal level. All of the ugliness and some of his encounters with human beings. Jesus Christ, the night he was betrayed, when he got into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, according to Matthew 26, verses 37 and 8, and Mark 14, verses 33 and 4, it says, when he got into the Garden, it says, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. But again, my point in saying that is, I want us to understand that that probably wasn't the only time, even though that was a terrible burden, it's not the only time that Jesus must have been burdened, sorrowful, hurting, even though it's not stated. I want to suggest to you there were a number of other times when Jesus must have experienced the intensity and the heartbreaking pain and suffering that only a pure and loving God in the flesh could when he came face to face with all that ugliness and ungodliness and evil intentions and all that stuff that was going on in the people's hearts and minds around him, which he felt on a level we can't begin to imagine. You say, Doug, well, how do you know that? 
Well, I'm going to tell you how I know that. I'm going to give you a few scripture references to begin with. I'm not going to turn to them. I'm just going to quote them. Keep in mind a few things that we absolutely know from scripture as we consider the pain that he had to have experienced. We know that God knows what's in the heart. Is that right? God knows what's in people's minds. He knows a word for there on our tongue. Psalm 139. He knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let me give you some scriptures. God in the Old Testament knew what was harbored in the heart. That's why he destroyed the world in Noah's day. Because he knew what was in the heart. It tells us in the Bible in Genesis 5 and verse 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's why God destroyed the world by water in Noah's day. That's what the text says. He knew the evil of even the intent of the hearts. God in the Old Testament Another passage, he told Samuel, as Eliab, the first of Jesse's sons, walked by him. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God said, Do not look at his appearance or his physical stature, for the Lord does not see as man sees, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but what? The Lord looks at the heart. God knew Eliab's heart, is that right? God knew David's heart, right? God, can, God knows what's in our hearts. He knows what's in the heart of man. Matter of fact, King David, after he became king, that same man after God's own heart, he went on to tell his son later on when his son was about to take over the kingdom in 1 Chronicles 28.9, David said, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If there was ever a passage that said, God knows your intentions. God knows what's in your heart. God knows what's there. Period. That one is it. So, as I said, especially from Psalm 139 as well, we know that God knows every single little nuance of the heart and the mind and the intentions. Moving to the New Testament, we know for a fact that the Christ of the New Testament, God in the flesh, God who could read the hearts and minds in the Old Testament, God in the flesh, the word came... To dwell amongst us. The Word became flesh to dwell amongst us. He was no different. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of those people around him. And the pain it must have caused him. When he as a as the Son of Man, as a human, came face to face with all of the evil, all of the unloving, ugly, ungodly stuff that just permeated from around the room. The one who is pure holiness. Does God find sin abhorrent? Does he find hatred and jealousy and ungodliness? God just, he he turned his back on his son on the cross because he couldn't stand sin. And all of that ugly spiritual sewage Jesus knew, coming at him like an avalanche from those around him, let us look at some texts and we will prove that this God in the flesh in the New Testament was the same as God the Father in the Old Testament in that he knew what was in people's hearts. Open your Bibles with me tonight to John 2. Think about Jesus' pain. 
in these situations, not just on the cross. Look what the Bible says in John 2, last three verses, 23, 4, and 5. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Not just in general, but he knew all men. That's what the text says. And he knew what was in them. He knew their motives. He knew their intentions. He knew their desires. He saw the sin. Remember, Jesus himself said, out of the heart come all of these terrible things. He knew what was in there. Turn with me to another passage in Mark chapter 7. Look at this one. Probably if I went in the right direction here in my Bible, I'd find it too. Mark chapter 7. Look at verses 21 through 23. This is where he makes that claim. He says, For from within, out of the heart of men, remember he knows all the hearts. He said in verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Did Jesus know what men had in their hearts? And all of these things are foreign to God. God has never been evil or any of these things. These were, these were foreign and abhorrent and repugnant to God. And yet God in the flesh knew them. And you know, it served Jesus well to know what was in the hearts of men. But it also must have hurt to have to experience the exposure to that as well as all the effects of all the stuff that people harbored in their hearts. Turn with me to Matthew 9. And we don't think about this very often. And you know, sometimes we need to, you know, look at some of these things that are a little different and we need to expand our knowledge and the way we think about Jesus Christ, not beyond biblical bounds, no, 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 no. But sometimes we get thinking in the same old ways about the same old subjects. And I want you to think about our Savior's heart being broken tonight. In Matthew 9, 1 through 4, it says, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Jesus looked on this, this paralytic. He had compassion in his heart. And he, he, he wanted to heal him. And he, he saw these people's faith. And he thought that was just, he saw how commendable that was. And what an awesome thing that was. And how positive and encouraging that was. And, and he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once some of the scribes said within, them, within themselves, this man blasphemes. How sickened must Jesus, how, how that must have hurt. Here he's commending this guy, commending him for his faith, commending his friends for their faith. Son, he says, be of good, and it's just, it's a good thing. But what, where are they at? In their hearts, in their minds, in their thoughts, they're ripping it up, they're tearing it down. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? 
He knew. Not only did he know, but don't miss how much it must have grieved him. Why do you think evil? I don't know how he said it. I'm not trying to put words in the Savior's mouth. I'm not trying to highlight things he didn't. But in my mind, I can picture Jesus. Why, why are you thinking such evil in your heart? And this is a great thing. Look with me in your Bibles in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Beginning at verse 1, he entered the synagogue again, Mark 3 and verse 1. And a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he'd heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. Don't you know Jesus knew why they were watching him? Here you got this guy. I don't know what his vocation was, but he's got a withered hand. He can't, he can't use it. I don't know if he's a farmer, fisherman, beggar. I have no idea. Doesn't tell us. But he's got a withered hand. And Jesus, they're watching him, wondering if he's going to heal him so they can accuse him. And, and Jesus knew that. And how that must have felt to him. He, he knew. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. Come here. Then he said to them, see, this proves he knew what they were thinking. Because he tells the man to come here, and then he looks at him and he says, let me ask you something, because he already knew. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? He kept silent. When he had looked around at them with anger, Jesus was mad at these people because they couldn't get it. They couldn't think in terms of good their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were evil. They were waiting to accuse him. And it didn't matter about this poor victim. And Jesus is just angry. This is a, this is a human being who's hurting here. And I can... I, don't you understand that doing good is a good thing to do no matter when? And he's angry at their hardness. Grieved, it says. The Bible says he was grieved. He was angry at them, but he was grieved. It hurt him. When you're grieving over something, it's like crying. You're grieving. It hurt him glass in the head maybe by the hardness of their hearts and he said to the man stretch out your hand he stretched it out and the hand was restored as whole as the others and then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him we could glist others but you know several times in the four gospel accounts if we read through them we see that Jesus knew their thoughts he knew what was in their hearts. He knew what was on their minds. And even his own disciples were not immune from that. We see that in John chapter 6, verse 61. In John chapter 16 and verse 19. And brethren, that's why I want to tell you tonight. We need to really make sure that when we do the right thing, we're doing it for the right reason. God knows our hearts as well as our actions. God still reads the hearts and minds of men. Is that true? Same God, same power. And so, we need to make sure that our motives and intentions are as pure as the actions that we're carrying out. Let me, let me show you why. Turn to me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And I'm not, I'm just saying, we need to think about this because sometimes we can do the right thing, but it ain't for the right reason. 
it's possible to do that. It's possible to come to church just because we've always come to church. That ain't the right reason to be here. What's the right reason to be here? To worship God. That's why we come. If that ain't why we're coming, we shouldn't come. Don't have many preachers say we shouldn't come to church. Well, look, if, if we're coming just because we always have, we're missing the boat. And God knows in our hearts that we're not really here to worship Him. That we're not really, that's not what it's about. And so it's things like that. And, and I'm sure other examples could be, could be spoken. But look here with me in 1 Peter 1, 22 and following. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 and following. As it ties into our lesson tonight. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. What's he saying? Look, you've obeyed the truth. You've purified your soul. Therefore, love from the heart. Don't just love. Love from the heart. Make sure it's sincere. Make sure that it's real, that it's genuine. That's what he says. In sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Because you've been, or as he says in verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That's the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, don't, don't differentiate the next chapter. That wasn't there when it was originally written. Therefore, because you have been born again of the truth, love one another truly, and therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit. Hypocrisy means wearing a mask. Laying aside all hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. That's all tied into what he said starting in verse 22, or even before verse 22 of chapter 1. Because you've been born again of the, of the Spirit and the Word and, and all of this here, what you need to do is make sure that your love is just as genuine as your conversion. Therefore, get rid of the mask. You know why? There ain't a mask any of us can put on that God can't look through and doesn't look through. Good old John that we talked about this morning. We talked about the Apostle John of this morning's sermon. He said in 1 John 3 and verse 18, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Same thing. Make it real. Because God knows whether it is or not. The centerpiece of the book of James is one that seems to find its way into a lot of sermons of mine. But, oh well. James chapter 3. James says the same thing. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, he says this, "...who's wise and understanding among you, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom." So our conduct is to be right. Verse 13, right? Conduct, your actions... Are to be, but he doesn't stop there. He says, yeah, your conduct needs to be right. What you do needs to be right. But the reason you do it needs to be just as right. That's the next few verses. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom doesn't descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. He's talking about heart attitude. But that flows right out of doing the right thing in verse 13. We can do the right thing, but it's not with the right attitude. But he says the wisdom, verse 17, that's above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, without masks. It's real. 
That's what leads to right conduct, is right attitude. And if we have either one of those, if we have the right attitude but our conduct's wrong, does God know it? Yep. But if we have the right conduct and our attitude is not right, does God know that? Yes. I want to give you one other New Testament example. And that's in Acts chapter 8. Of God's being able so completely to read our hearts. Acts chapter 8. We know the story here. In Acts chapter 8. Once I get there, that's better. <laughs> we know that Philip's gone down to Samaria. We know the Samaritans have heard the good news of Jesus. They've been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We know that they had not at that point received the miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. So the church up in Jerusalem hears and they send down Peter and John, verse 14. Peter and John come down, they lay their hands on them, and they receive the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit down there in Samaria. Now, Verse 18 of Acts 8, when Simon, this is that sorcerer who had been converted, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Now Simon wasn't trying to do the right thing. Simon was trying to do the wrong thing. But where did it come from? Heart. And God knew that. Peter knew it. Peter said, Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart. See, there it is again. Your heart is not right, verse 21. The thought of your heart is not right, verse 22. For I see that you are poisoned, verse 23, by bitterness and bound by iniquity. That's what's in your heart, he says. And Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. What is my bottom line tonight? It is simply this. It's not just about us. It's not just that we need to do the right thing for the right reason. We, we do, and we all know that. But, but what I want, is my main point tonight, is to say this. Our Savior has suffered so much for us. He has gone through so much for us, it is unimaginable. I don't believe there's a person in this room that can get their mind around what Jesus Christ fully did for us. His separation from the Father alone when he was on that cross because of sin cannot begin to fathom, to get my mind around the fact that that was the one and only time in all of eternity that God the Father would be separated from his beloved Son. And he did it for you and me. The physical beating that that man took, having himself spiked to a cross, and all that he suffered, not just, not just, quote unquote, the crucifixion experience physically, but so much else that went on with it. And all through his ministry, the suffering, the feeling of the, the ungodliness and the ugliness around him. My point tonight for us... Brethren, let's just make sure for Jesus' sake, for his sake, he suffered enough. Let's make sure that we are not further breaking our beloved Savior's heart by what he encounters when he looks into ours. 
Let's just make sure that our heart is as pure and our intentions are as pure as we can possibly get them so that he doesn't encounter ugliness when he looks inside us. Let's make sure not only that we're doing the right things, but for his sake not to hurt him, we're doing them for the right reasons. And tonight, if you have never obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that is listed in Romans chapter 6, you have that opportunity to be baptized. Or maybe you're here tonight. You know, King David was part of God's Old Testament people. King David, man after God's own heart. But King David made a terrible mistake. You remember what he prayed? Create in me a clean heart, O God. Maybe you're somebody here tonight who's already obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine by being baptized, but maybe, maybe your heart's not as clean as you'd like it to be. Maybe you need the prayers of the church to help you cry out to God, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Sometimes we need our hearts cleansed again, not by baptism. Sins are forgiven, but we just need to make sure that our hearts are as pure and as clean as we can get them. If you have any need, will you come to the front as we stand and sing?